Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. The conversation in today's episode is with one of our leading experts on Iran. We'll talk about the nuclear deal that is in all the headlines, but I hope to dig a little deeper into Iran, the country, and its people. Also stay tuned to find out who is really defaulting on student loan debt in this week's episode of Wessel's Economic Update. My guest today is Suzanne Maloney, the Interim Deputy Director of Foreign Policy at Brookings and a senior fellow in the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy, where her research focuses on Iran and Persian Gulf energy. She is the editor of Markaz, a blog on politics in and policy toward the Middle East, published by Brookings. Her books include the 2008 monograph, Iran's Long Reach, as well as the just-published Iran's Political Economy Since the Revolution. Suzanne has also served on the policy planning staff of the U.S. State Department and was Middle East advisor for ExxonMobil Corporation. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Thank you so much. This is very exciting. Iran is at the center of a lot of news these days. Uh, So let's start with your interest in your study of Iran. You describe yourself as an Iran junkie. What about Iran interests you so much that you've devoted your career thus far to it? Iran is just a puzzle, and it is consistently challenging our expectations and our predictions. And so as a scholar, it's an endlessly fascinating place to work on, to write about, and to follow. Um, I actually came to Iran having originally, as an undergraduate, studied what was then, I'm dating myself, the Soviet Union. I know it well. Um, (laughs) That was my degree, too. (laughs) Yes. It's good to know that it's not entirely (laughs) obsolete these days with the changes in the international environment. But um, I sort of came somewhat uh, circuitously to the Middle East um, and landed on and in Iran, where I had the opportunity to to study and do research for my doctoral dissertation as part of some of the first um, post-revolutionary academic exchanges between Iran and the United States back in the 90s. So did you spend some time in the capital, Tehran, and other places? I did. I was studying in Tehran at a a research institute associated with the University of Tehran, but the, the best part was really being able to travel around the country and engage with Iranians um, from all walks of life. We went to Iran at a time when there wasn't an an enormous amount of scrutiny of Americans. There were very few Americans traveling at that time. And so we had a relatively wide degree of latitude, at least at first, with respect to our ability to sort of get out and about and engage as almost as widely as we could uh, find access. And it was, uh, it's an incredible country and people are, profoundly hospitable and friendly. I'd like to get back to that idea if we can in a minute, but can you give us a little bit of political science 101 for our listeners to understand kind of the general makeup of the Iranian regime? It's called the Islamic Republic of Iran. It has a president, but it also has a supreme leader, which is the Ayatollah Khamenei. Yeah, Iran has a very unique and um, bifurcated political system. It's the product of a revolution that brought together uh, parties that oppose the Shah, groups and individuals who came from very different ideological perspectives and were united almost solely by their antipathy toward the monarchy and their desire to see some kind of a change. Um, The way that it was all sort of amalgamated after the revolution was through a very messy process. Uh, Iran was in a state of some chaos and even, I would argue, civil war for much of the first two years after the revolution in 1979. 
And the Constitution that eventually was negotiated and passed uh, through the process of, of state building was one that established uh, really dual lines of authority, both um, a popular dimension through representative government, the maintenance of Iran's parliament, which has more than 100 years of history and a real strong degree of uh, groundedness among the Iranian population, the presidency, um, which was not originally part of, of the first uh, iteration of the Islamic Republic, but has come to become a central role. Um, but also the separate line of authority that runs uh, through and up toward the office of the supreme leader um, and uh, is effectively divinely inspired and guided. Um, this was the principle known as veleate fahi, which is the, the guardianship of the jurist. It was a kind of unique philosophical twist by then Ayatollah Khomeini, who was, of course, um, in many ways the spiritual leader of the revolution itself and, and moved into the role of supreme leader of Iran uh, in its first iteration. Okay, and so the two, the two uh, lines of authority kind of interact, and it, I mean, would it be wrong for us to look at Iran as an absolute dictatorship because it has a president, it has a parliament. Iran is a very unique system and one in which uh, I think there is a certain degree of coherence within the system, um, but where there is also a considerable degree of competition between um, the various institutions of government, the various personalities who have uh, established themselves and become sort of power centers over the course of the past 36 years. It is, in many respects, an authoritarian regime. It is a, a system in which dissent is not tolerated. Uh, it is a system in which the law is not equal um, for all people. But it is also a system in which there are uh, democratic institutions. There is a, a certain degree of um, familiarity and even commitment to retaining the role of popular vote, popular opinion in shaping politics and policy. Um, so it is a, a very complicated system, but it's proven particularly durable and I think uh, in part because you have a, a certain degree of cohesion among the elite um, despite the competition, despite the factionalism that exists. Well, I encourage listeners to uh, go to our website, find your bio, and read everything you've written about Iran and its politics. It's all very uh, interesting, especially the Brookings essay you penned two years ago. Is it two years now? Wow. Iran surprises itself in the world. It was right after, right during the election of President Rouhani. Uh, you gave a really succinct and fascinating account of Iran's politics uh, in that essay. Let's move on to what's in the headlines before we move off of it, if we can. And that's the nuclear deal, uh, Tillman Iran's nuclear program in exchange for some lifting of sanctions. Let's posit that, that Congress is going to fail to actually block it. It will go into uh, effect. What should we look for next in terms of monitoring the deal and lifting sanctions? Like kind of what's the timetable and what are the big issues? Well, it's a really complicated deal. Um, and once we get through this congressional review, I think the most important date to be looking toward is uh, when the deal goes into full implementation, um, which is not expected to, in fact, come until probably the end of the first quarter of 2016, by most estimates. Iran must undertake a number of obligations prior to what is called Implementation Day. Um, it's effectively putting its plutonium reactor on ice, um, uh, undertaking to uh, constrain its production of low-enriched uranium, um, removing 
thousands of centrifuges uh, and a, a wide range of other technical measures that are intended to provide confidence that Iran won't be able to rush toward a bomb if, in fact, its leadership makes that decision at some point in the future. These are all the concessions that were so important, that were so hard fought over the course of the past two years of the negotiations. And until and unless those steps have been undertaken, the Iranians won't see the sanctions relief that's been promised as, as a result of the deal. So let's turn from kind of the overview of the deal itself to what impact it's having or could have on Iranian society and politics. So sort of an internal view, if you will. Well, I think we're all waiting to see exactly how it plays out. What's been, I think, most notable is the extent to which there is a real consensus behind the deal. The traditional analysis or the conventional wisdom here in Washington is that there are good guys and bad guys in Iran, that President Rouhani, whose election two years ago helped facilitate a sort of revival of the talks around this issue, uh, that he's one of the good guys and that there are bad guys who are trying to stop him from doing this deal. I think that's a little bit oversimplistic and it reflects an understanding of the, the polarization of Iran that is, is somewhat outdated. Um, in fact, Rouhani was elected precisely because he was trusted by the elites of the Iranian political system to undertake these negotiations without appearing to cede any of Iran's red lines or its vital interests in its nuclear program as well as its broader strategic interests. And he took care and his negotiator, the foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, took care to avoid trampling on some of the important requirements that the supreme leader laid out with respect to the deal. They negotiated really fiercely, um, which is why this process has taken so long. And I think they can credibly go back to the hardline skeptics of any concessions um, and make the case that they have, uh, in fact, preserved a considerable degree of Iran's nuclear infrastructure, that they have retained some flexibility for future development with respect to its nuclear program. And therefore, there isn't you know, the depth of opposition to this deal that we see here in Washington or even around the United States. Iran is a very politicized society. There's a lot of debate on almost any issue. And of course, this one being as high profile and as central to Iran's economy and to its uh, strategic interests has elicited a, quite a bit of debate. But all of the key voices from the military, from the nuclear establishment, even the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, uh, who succeeded Khomeini back in 1989, uh, have defended the deal uh, and largely upheld its provisions. Uh, and so I don't think that there's going to be any real internal pushback against Rouhani, at least in this early phase. What's going to be interesting to watch is what happens um, when, in fact, the deal goes into full implementation. Not so much for what it means for Iran's nuclear uh, infrastructure, but really what happens when uh, foreign investors, foreign tourists, when Iran begins to re-engage in a very serious way with the rest of the world, how that plays out on the streets, how that plays out in the halls of government. Iran has parliamentary elections coming up uh, early next spring, and that will be an opportunity for different ambitious partisans to sort of make their case pro and con about the future of Iran and what direction Iran may be going in. The other 
sort of challenge that Rouhani and Zarif in particular face is the challenge of becoming too popular. Um, this is always a threat for elected Iranian politicians, uh, in part because the supreme leader has feuded with every single one of his presidents. And part of those feuds has been motivated uh, by the sense of threat and challenge that he has found when he, whenever he sees a president getting a little bit too big for his britches. Rouhani and Zarif are extremely popular at this time. Uh, and they will. Uh, that will only continue as 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 Iranians begin to see some of the trickle down effects of new investment and new trade with the rest of the world, uh, and that may actually paradoxically uh, rebound in a way that is a little bit dangerous for Rouhani. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Um, and this might be kind of a segue into the next question. You've written about a quote redemption unquote for Iran. Should the deal be finalized and implemented, uh, inter international sanctions lifted, what do you mean by redemption? Well, Iran gets out of jail free. I mean, you know, they're out of the penalty box at this point. The rest of the world will do business as usual with Iran. Iran will be welcome to international fora. The sort of stench of pariahood that it had attached itself to Iran during the presidency of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, both because of the nuclear escalation and because of Ahmadinejad's proclivity for really provocative statements and reprehensible rhetoric on the Holocaust and other issues, that problem is now gone. Um, Iran is now an ordinary state. Uh, but in fact, in many ways, its policies remain very extraordinary. It's... Uh, efforts to expand its influence around the region through support of militia and proxy groups in other states in a way that is very destabilizing to the governments there is a longstanding problem. It's uh, inimical posture toward the United States, uh, even if it's largely rhetorical at this stage, um, is one that is still somewhat uh, problematic for engagement in the rest of the world. Um, and so, you know, Iran doesn't fully play by the rules of the international system at this stage, and yet it is now a, a fully welcome member of that system. And, and to quote you again, you said the Iranian leadership is steeped in a Hobbesian understanding of the international system. That sounds like just the kind of thing that critics of the nuclear deal are afraid of. Well, this was a somewhat controversial statement when I made it, and I know other scholars of Iran have contested it. So my own perception, and it is based on a couple of decades of watching the leadership and both the you know sort of high hopes of the moment, but also recognition that other moments of optimism in Iran have ended uh, less auspiciously than, than most of the optimists hoped. Um, this deep sense of paranoia, this conviction that Iran has suffered historically at the hands of world powers uh, and therefore its resort to any means of defense is wholly justified, even sanctified. Um, I believe it's one that the Iranian leadership simply can't shake off. Um, this deal will leave Iran somewhat more secure. The prospect of a military strike on its nuclear program was never quite as great as uh, some of the alarmists seem to think, but it certainly was out there. Um, and that will be entirely uh, a moot point after this deal has gone into implementation. And so in some respects, Iran should be less paranoid about its, uh, its relationship with the world and its engagement with the world. 
But I think this leadership that whose worldview was very much forged through the disruptive experience of the revolution and then the chaos that followed, both the internal chaos of trying to establish a new state in the face of uh, you know considerable uh, disruption on the street and tribal insurrections and all kinds of difficulties around the country. But then very quickly, the Iraqi invasion and the eight-year war that followed um, that is a very strong sense of, of uh, suspicion, paranoia, and conspiracy, and I think it will be uh, it will require more than simply a, a, an arms control agreement to overcome it. And now we're going to take a short break for Hutchinson and Director David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Student debt is a big issue, and for good reason. Americans have about $1.2 trillion in student loans. That's bigger than car loans, bigger than credit card debt. Politicians are falling all over each other to offer solutions to what's often called the student debt crisis. And it certainly is a crisis for people who borrowed heavily for programs that didn't pay off in the job market, especially because it's very hard to get rid of student loans and bankruptcy. But sometimes the conversation about student loans is long on good intentions and short on hard facts. Thanks to economists at the U.S. Treasury, we have a whole lot of new facts drawn not from the usual surveys where students are asked about their loans or from credit bureau reports, but from the government student loan database and tax records on 4 million borrowers. That's what they call big data. Here are a few gleanings from the new data, which are summarized in a new paper published by the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity. One, there has been a surge in students at for-profit and two-year schools over the last decade. To the extent that there is a student debt crisis, it is concentrated among this growing number of borrowers, the ones who went to for-profit schools and, to a lesser extent, community colleges. Two, of all the students who left school in 2011, 70% of those who had fallen into default by 2013 were those borrowers who went to for-profit or two-year schools. Many of them fared poorly in the job market during and after the Great Recession, Many ended up with very heavy debts relative to their earnings. Three, in contrast, the majority of borrowers who went to more traditional four-year colleges, you know, the state university, and those who went to graduate school, did somewhere between okay and well in the job market. They had low rates of default, even though they typically borrowed more money. Here's an example. Students at the University of Phoenix, a for-profit, have borrowed more than at any other single school. Of those who finished in 2009, 45% were in default five years later. Compare that to students at New York University, a private institution where there's been a lot of borrowing. Only 6% of them were in default five years later. One more thing I learned. The future is not going to be exactly like the past. As the job market has improved, there has been some softening of enrollments at for-profit and community colleges. The government has been cracking down on these for-profit schools, and it has been promoting income-based repayment plans that can help people who go to school but don't end up with very well-paying jobs. That suggests we will not see an inexorable increase in student loan defaults into the future. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Thanks, David. Let's rejoin the conversation with Suzanne Maloney. Looking beyond today's headlines about the deal. Most Americans over a certain age will remember the hostage crisis of of 1979, 1980. And that's cast a very long shadow over U.S.-Iran relations. Do you think that's still a valid frame of reference for um, Americans in particular to view Iran through? 
I think it's still a valid frame of reference because it reflects this unwillingness to adhere to the norms of the international system that is still part of the Iranian government's ethos. Um, and the failure to take any responsibility for that action, the failure to acknowledge the wrongdoing, um, and, and in fact, the repetition of similar sorts of actions in the attack two years ago on the British embassy uh, and uh, continuing diplomatic fracases with various states around the world um, in similar fashion, I think, is reflective of a government that uh, is still struggling with its place in the world. Um, I don't think that the hostage crisis is the end-all, be-all. I, I don't even know to what extent it motivates or even is, you know, first or foremost in the minds of American policymakers today. Um, it is, to some extent, ancient history among a generation that has grown up both both here in the United States and particularly in Iran, where most of the population is too young to remember that period. I would note that Iranians also have, you know, their own historical grievances that they hold quite dear, um, the, particularly the role of the United States in contributing to the events that led to the toppling of Prime Minister Mossadegh in 1953 is uh, an episode that looms large in the Iranian imagination. Um, other American uh, policies, whether it was support for Saddam Hussein, uh, the failure to to hold Saddam Hussein accountable for his use of chemical weapons against both his own population and Iranian civilians. These are all uh, policies that uh, are still very much resented by the Iranian people. Um, rightly so. They have been acknowledged and various American officials have expressed regret about some of our past policies. We haven't heard the same level of, uh, of historical responsibility on the part of the Iranian leadership. Thinking also of the Iranian people, they hear from their own government um, slogans like death to America, death to Israel, America is called the great Satan. Does that kind of uh, anti-Americanism, anti-Westernism resonate with the Iranian people in particular or they just kind of hear it and it's in the background and they move on about their daily lives? Well, I think most individuals um, are in some way uh, shaped by the propaganda and the environment in which they live. But my own experience is that Iranians don't simply uh, swallow what their government tells them whole. Uh, there are many who uh, have continuing issues with American policies of on a range of different issues. Um, but in general, it, it is also a country that has come a long way since 1979. And its population is profoundly interested in starting fresh with the international community, um, re-engaging, having access not just to information. Um, it's a very uh, literate and technologically adept population, um, but also the opportunities uh, to travel and, and, and see uh, greater travel into Iran. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, there's an overlay of, of anti-Americanism, which is not irrelevant and shouldn't simply be dismissed. Um, but my own experience is that uh, Iranians are profoundly excited to find Americans in their midst, if only that they see it as a signal that uh, there is some crack in the wall of mistrust between the two countries. Now, I think that's a, a really fascinating point. You spoke earlier about the hospitality of the Iranian people. Um, they're highly literate, technologically adept, um, excited to find Americans in their midst. It seems like there's a there's a desire to have at least contact at the people to people level. I mean, who cares what our governments are saying? Let's 
you know, let's see if we can get along. Do you think that's a, a kind of a building block for better relations between the governments in the future? Or are we just going to have to kind of find opportunities to have these people-to-people cultural contacts where we can. I hope to see the people-to-people contacts expand as they did briefly during the late 1990s. The difficulty is so long as there's an estrangement between the government, these people-to-people contacts are often jeopardized. And that's what we found um, particularly uh, in the later years of the Khatami presidency when it became quite difficult and even dangerous for Iranians to take advantage of the opportunities that were made available to them, whether it was through visitors programs or other official uh, activities of the State Department that were attempting to expand this understanding. Um, They were often uh, punished when they returned home, their passports taken away, uh, and and several actually were imprisoned as a result or at least apparently as a result of, of their engagement here. Um, I think, you know, the threat of of that kind of recrimination is one that still looms large. We have a number of dual national Iranian-Americans who are in jail, including a Washington Post reporter. Uh, And those sorts of concerns uh, have to be taken into account. But um, the more contact there is between the two countries, the better um, for the long term. I saw that uh, President Barack Obama uh, engaged in a Facebook post in which an Iranian man and his boy were giving out apricots to all the people, and the man was praising his son. And then President Obama kind of wrote a little Facebook post saying, "You know, this is this is a cool thing that this little boy in Iran did this." Yeah, you know, we haven't had enough opportunities for Iranians to be humanized. I think that's something that Iranians feel very keenly um, in the American imagination. This sense of flag burning and death to America chanting is probably the sole image that exists, and of course. Um, it's not remotely reflective of the wide diversity of the Iranian political views, much less the wide diversity of, of Iranian society. Uh, it's a young, dynamic, incredibly uh, well-positioned society for the future. I think if I were to place a bet on the long-term democratic opportunities in the region, Iran is it um, by a long shot. But uh, that that doesn't unfortunately mean that, you know, we're going to wake up tomorrow and see a a sort of Jeffersonian democracy in Iran, simply that you have this uh, population that is very experienced with uh, representative institutions, with elections, with parliaments, with the way that business is conducted when the people's voice matters. Um, And if it were not for this overlay, this sort of clerical element of the government, uh, Iran would be a very different and I think even more exciting place. And in terms of of, uh, government-to-government relations, I mean, it took the U.S. government and Cuba 50 years or more to normalize relations after the Cuban Revolution. Do you think our government and and the government in Tehran can ever normalize relations? And if so, what will it take? It will take, I think, some kind of a change in the character of the Iranian government, unfortunately. I would like to believe that it's possible um, to see a kind of full-scale normalization. But if you look at the Cuban analogy, of course, most of our differences with the Cuban regime um, by the time of the normalization were long since uh, gone away. Uh, And that's not the case with Iran. We have very profound differences with the way that Iran conducts itself around the region, with Iran's uh, approach to the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, with Iran's policies and support to the killing machine of Bashar Assad in Syria. Uh, so all of these uh, policies and differences are not going to be resolved very easily. Um, 
the added difficulty is that the ideological complexion of the Iranian government is still a, a component of its legitimacy. I don't believe it's the fundamental component any longer, but retaining this sort of um, superficial veneer of anti-Americanism is one that uh, is, is something that's very important to the Iranian system. Um, without it, of course, you know, there'd be a sort of proliferation of different ideologies. Um, this is the central tenet. It's a defining characteristic. And they're not prepared to give it up anytime soon. Uh, I want to kind of close off our interview by asking you to, to talk briefly about your new book. It's called Iran's Political Economy Since the Revolution. What's it about? And why did you write it? Well, I wrote the book primarily because um, I think the economy has played such a significant role in Iran's decision-making since the revolution and in the way that Iran uh, exerts its influence around the world. Uh, and yet it, it's often sort of relegated to a paragraph or two in most traditional histories of Iran. So I really wanted to look at Iran through the lens of political economy and how the economic pressures and opportunities had influenced some of its decision-making. And my fundamental conclusion in the book is that, you know, a government that was established on the basis of, of a very distinct ideological concept, one that actually found its way into the institutions and the structure of government is now very much dependent upon its ability to inspire its population through the delivery of services, um, through providing jobs and opportunities. This is central to the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic today. That explains some of the success of sanctions in influencing Iran's nuclear policy. It also explains why the Iranian government, uh, despite the clerical apparatus, despite the extent to which there is still a theological dimension to its, uh, to its rule, is very much governed by the perceptions of what the population wants and needs. And I think that we see in this nuclear deal a sort of legitimation of, uh, of the idea that this is an Iran that wants to uh, in some way deliver services to its people, in some way answer the people's expectations for a better life. Uh, was, it wasn't what the clerics uh, intended when they took power after the post-revolutionary struggle, but it is the sort of inadvertent outcome of the power struggles that we've seen over the course of the past 36 years. Well, I hope everybody goes to uh, learn more about your book. It's quite illuminating. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. You can learn more about Suzanne Maloney and her research on our website at brookings.edu and follow her on Twitter at Maloney Suzanne. And also you can read the latest on Middle East politics and policy from our Marquez blog edited by Suzanne at brookings.edu slash Marquez. That's M-A-R-K-A-Z. My thanks to my audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. Also, thanks again to Podcast Movement and the Academy of Podcasters for naming the Brookings Cafeteria Best News and Politics Podcast in this year's awards. We're very honored for the recognition. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.